you have your Bibles, please turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Um, I do a poor job of this when I do announcements, but we do have visitor cards. Um, hot off the press. So if you are a visitor and uh, you would like to fill out a card, we encourage that. Um, place it in the back in the tithe box or uh, hand it to myself. Um, we just, it really says on here, we want to know how to serve you. And so that's the, uh, that's the intent behind this. So, so I can check that off my list of things that I forget to do. There's that. Um, this morning, we dive back into Galatians 2. And uh, this morning, we find ourselves, if you've been with us so, so far through Galatians, we find ourselves in the midst of Paul's defense of his gospel. Okay, so in this, what we've seen are two things that these, these false teachers, these Judaizers, are doing in the churches that Paul founded in Galatia. They are saying, one, that Paul's message is not his own, but that he has distorted the message of the apostles in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem are John and James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter. And these apostles, these false teachers in uh, Galatia have come in and said, Paul, the message you heard from Paul about this free grace that you get in Jesus Christ, that is not what's being preached. He's, he learned that message from them and then he distorted it. In the first week, we saw Paul introduce the book by stating that he was an apostle. Right? He said, I'm not sent by men, but I'm sent by Christ. In week two, Paul gave a serious and urgent rebuke to the false teachers in the Galatians who began to believe their message. And then last week, Paul began the defense of his ministry stating, and, and Neil uh, did this for us, he stated that the, the, the gospel that Paul preached was God-originated, was God-given, and was God-glorifying. And so one thing that we need to think about, I think is important for us to understand, is we need to put ourselves in the place of the Galatians, just for a moment. Just imagine that Paul comes in and he preaches this wonderful message that you can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And then these false teachers come in and they say, no, Paul's wrong, his message is wrong, he's not authoritative. He's stolen this message from, from, you know, from, the, from the others, but they preach circumcision. So they have come in and they've said that Jesus isn't enough. They said that not only do you have to be, have faith in Christ, but you have to follow these, these laws of Moses. You have to be circumcised. So Paul, in the last section we saw, he preached and defended the first accusation by displaying that he received the gospel from Jesus. Right, he said, I only spent 15 days with Peter. The gospel that I preach is my own. Okay? And so now, if they believe that this message is true, and they believe that Paul is really authoritative, then the question for the Galatians is this. If Paul is authoritative, and the Jerusalem apostles are authoritative, are there two gospels? And so for us, right? If I, if I am preaching the gospel and someone else is preaching the gospel and our gospels do not line up, then the question would occur in your mind, are there two gospels? Is there confusion? Is there 
hostility? Is there a difference in the witness of the ones preaching the gospel? So in this passage, Paul must do two things. He has to continue to defend his own authority while also displaying that there is complete unity in the gospel message. When I thought about this and the language that Paul uses here in a minute about running a race in vain, I thought about this week and us trying to potty train Charlie. You all laugh because you're done with it. We go to Dairy Queen, get him out of his car seat, Charlie. Take him to somewhere else, playing on the playground, Charlie, yeah. And we're going back and forth, we're putting him in underwear, we're putting him in a pull-up, we're trying everything that we can, and I feel like I look at Charlie and say, we're not on the same page here about what's trying to get done. Our messages are somehow getting conflicted, and I feel as if that's where the Galatians are. What is the truth? Is there one gospel? Do, are we all behind this one truth? And so I think what we're going to find out today and if you're taking notes and you want to put down a main idea, this is the main idea that Christian fellowship is grounded in gospel communication and it's empowered by gospel love. Christian fellowship is grounded in gospel communication and it's empowered by gospel love. And so the title of today's message is Preach the Gospel and Remember the Poor. And that's what we're going to read about today. So... Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet... Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks and to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Verse 6, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Now really quickly notice this language that Paul keeps using. Those esteemed as authority, you know, those, those who are thought of as, he's going to say in a minute, those who are the pillars of. And what he's doing is recognizing that these Judaizers are trying to place Peter and James and John above him in the pecking order of apostles. And he wants them to know that God does not have that pecking order. That Paul is on equal footing. So he says in verse 7, he says, On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, who's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And uh, 
As we come before you today and worship through your word, Lord, I pray that we would just be in awe of who you are, Lord, that we would leave here invigorated by the truth of the gospel, Lord, that we would be amazed by your love and your grace, Lord, that you would empower us and move us, Lord, to, to draw close to you. Lord, we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at three things that God cares about from this passage. And the number one is God cares about our gospel conversations. God cares about our gospel conversations. So in verse one, we continue this type of narrative within this letter. And so Paul says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now, there's a couple of different ways to look at this timeline, and we don't have time to get into those, and you're thankful for that. I spent a lot of hours this week trying to figure out what I believe in this timeline matter, and what I believe is that this meeting took place before the Jerusalem Council that we find in AD, 15, uh, AD 50 in, in Acts 15. And if you want to talk about that later, I am more than welcome to us to have a conversation around that, but now's not the time. So, moving on, what is more important is why Paul is going. As we discussed, Paul is balancing these two objectives, right, of having his own authority and of presenting a unified message. The Galatians need to be reassured on both fronts. They need to know that Paul's message is from God. And they need to know that his message is the only one. And they need to know that truth. And I want to stop for a moment and, and recognize that the Galatians are not simply being hard to impress or hard to please. But the Galatians have these questions. What's the truth? Does Paul really have authority? Is, is his message the real one? Is there a divided message here? And the reason that these questions must be answered is because their understanding of salvation is at stake. Right? It's not that the Galatians just want to cause a ruckus. It's not that they just want to allow these things to happen, but these, these false teachers are using them as a pawn in order to try to push their message. And so the reason that Paul is so urgent with all of this, because Paul cares about two things. He cares about God's glory, and he cares about the Galatians' good. The reason that we're so fervent in preaching the Bible here at Glenlock Baptist Church is because we care about God's glory and we care about your good. And so Paul has to have these conversations. These things have to take place because the, the, it's for the sake of the Galatians. And it's for the sake of God's glory. So Paul goes to Jerusalem. It says in response to a revelation. You'll notice that means that God was the one who sent him to Jerusalem. No man, no Peter didn't say, you have to come. You know, nobody sent Paul in this meeting. It says by revelation, whatever revelation that was, God sent Paul to Jerusalem. And he took with him two men, Barnabas and Titus. We're going to talk about them a little bit more in a few moments. But verse 2 brings to light the reason for Paul's journey. He came to do two things, present to them the gospel that he preaches among the Gentiles, and to make sure he's not running and had not been running his race in vain. For 14 years, Paul had been preaching this message. And now for the first time, it seems, he comes and he presents it to the apostles. 
What is this race that Paul is speaking of that he's running? I believe it's the race of his ministry. The race of the ministry that he's been doing, that he's about to go on missionary journeys, that he's been going to the people, to the Gentiles, and telling them this message. And so he says, I've been running this race, and I want to be sure that I haven't been running it in vain. So does Paul truly believe, because when I first read this, I thought, does Paul think his message is wrong? You know, when I, when I first thought of the idea of him running his race in vain, I would imagine, does he, does he really believe that the gospel he's preaching is wrong? And I don't think that that's what he believes. I believe that when he looks and he sees what's happening with the Judaizers, he, he knows that if he, goes to the, if he goes to the apostles in Jerusalem and they preach a different message and the church is not unified, then the gospel he's preaching is in vain because it does not bring about God's unified church. If there's two messages, then he believes that he's been running his race in vain. John Stott says it this way. He says, it was not, we may be sure, that he had any personal doubts or misgivings about his gospel and needed the reassurance of other Jerusalem apostles. For he'd been preaching it for 14 years. Right? He was sure of his message. But rather, lest his ministry, past and present, should be rendered fruitless by the Judaizers. It was to overthrow their influence, not to strengthen his own conviction that he laid his gospel before the Jerusalem apostles. He did this for the sake of the church. He did it for the sake of the Galatians. I remember playing baseball as a kid and going to lessons, and I'd go to lessons and the, the baseball instructor would say, all right, put your elbow down. So I put my elbow down. And then I'd go to practice and my coach would say, get your elbow up. So I get my elbow up. And then I'd go to the Baseball instructor, he'd say, small stride, and I'd go with the small stride. Now I'd go to baseball practice, he'd say, big stride, so I'd take a big stride. And these two guys thought that they were running this great race, but really what they were doing was running in vain, because I had no idea what I was doing. They were preaching two messages to me, and I was somewhere in between, and I couldn't hit the ball worth a lick. So obviously, this mixed messaging wasn't working. And so when we look at this, there cannot be a mixed message when it comes to presenting the gospel. What is the implications of this? How does this affect you and me? And I think it points to the reality that the gospel is too important and the church is too valuable for us to proclaim a disjointed message based on a lack of spiritual zeal. Some of you may be thinking, what does that mean? I believe that it means that God cares about us having gospel-centered conversations. He cares about us reading and learning and discussing the truths of Scripture. Because it was not anyone else but God who sent Paul to Jerusalem and said, we need to work this out so that that message can be won. Some of you may be thinking, is his application really going to be the old Sunday school answer that you need to read your Bible? It is. Sometimes that is the application. Sometimes that is the answer. You need to read your Bible. And I would go beyond that and I would say, not only do you need to read your Bible, but you need to care about what it says. I think sometimes we get so stuck in this idea that reading our Bible is enough, we forget to care about what it says. We forget to glean the truth that's in it. Paul went to, to, to Jerusalem so that he could have 
what seemingly could have been a very awkward conversation. I don't think that Paul went to Jerusalem knowing for sure that that was not going to be a hard conversation to have. But what Paul did know is that God's grace was at work in his life. And what he did know is that God's grace was at work in Peter and the Jerusalem apostles. And what he did know is that God's work in our lives takes precedent over our own comfort and our own fear. Sometimes we avoid conversations because it's just easier to do so. Sometimes we avoid going to this book and, and really reading and, and digesting what it says because we fear at what it may change in our lives. What it may convict us of. But Paul cared enough about the truth of the scriptures that he set aside fleshly comforts of doing his own thing. Sometimes it's easier to do your own thing. He set it aside in order to assure biblical and spiritual unity. Paul, part of what Christ desires is that you and I would not run our races in vain. This means we see the value in understanding biblical truth and we are urged by the Spirit to have conversations that revolve around this truth. Riding in the car yesterday with my brother-in-law, Brett, we were talking about this. He said, you know, the more I read the Bible, the more I want to talk about it. And I think the more you read the Bible, the more God's going to lead you to talk about it. He's going to lead you to talk about the deep truths of Scripture. He's going to lead you to talk about adoption and sanctification and justification and all these big topics because He cares about you having gospel conversations. I want you to think about who was at this meeting. Paul, look at all the, I didn't write them down, so I'm not going to try to name them all. All the letters that Paul read, wrote in the New Testament. Peter, first and second Peter. John, the apostle. The gospel of John, first John, probably second and third John. James, the book of James. The most of the New Testament writings are sitting around in a circle discussing this. You don't think that God cares about what he's placed within his word? And that he cares that he's placed it there for our good. Not only are these men the foundation of the New Testament, they're the foundation of the church. Jerusalem church, the, the churches in, across the province of Asia, all these different places are sitting around discussing this truth. Yet we, oftentimes, and me, are more willing to talk about the secondary issues and argue about the things of the building and the things of, rather than to have conversations around the truth of the Bible. We, we get more fired up about talking about the things that don't necessarily matter when it comes to salvation than we do to have conversations around the goodness of God found in Scripture. Paul, according to the ESV study Bible notes, says that he would regard his work as in vain if it were to result in a divided church. A Gentile half and a Jewish half. That was not the plan of God. God values a united church. In Ephesians 3, he says, that Paul says that his intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. 
The wisdom of God isn't seen in a divided church. John 17, what was part of the prayer of Jesus? My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. We believe through what? The message, the gospel. Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Striving for unity is energetically moving towards the same direction and understanding the same truth. And so my, my call to you is care about what's in here. Talk about it. Have conversations about it. If you have questions, ask them. If you don't understand something, ask me. And when I don't know, I'll ask somebody else. But it matters. I tell our students all the time, it matters what you believe. Because God cares about these conversations. At times, He ordains these conversations. And as we can see here, He cared about Paul and Peter coming together around this conversation. So God cares about our gospel conversation. Secondly, He cares about our gospel preservation. Yes, I have a little bit of Neil in this sermon. Not the first letter, but the last four, okay? He cares about our gospel preservation. In verse 3, we see a little bit of why Titus is there, okay? It says, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So Titus is a Greek Christian. He's mentioned in several places. If you want to learn a lot about Titus, read the book of Titus. Probably a good place to go. Paul wrote a letter to Titus. He was ministered with Paul in Ephesus. He carried letters to Corinth and he eventually pastored the church in Crete. But I think his, his role here is to be a physical, fleshly example of what Paul is preaching. Paul's saying, I'm bringing with me a gospel that says that you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to add anything to faith in Jesus. You know who I'm bringing with me? A prime example. I'm bringing Titus. He is a physical representation of the gospel I preach. A Greek man who is not circumcised according to the law, but is a Christian. So Paul now states that the apostles in Jerusalem, they didn't compel Titus to be circumcised. And that may not mean a whole lot to you, that's groundbreaking for the unity of the church. The fact that Paul comes before them, he brings Titus, and they say, Titus, you're a Christian just as you are. That is a big deal for Titus. <laughs> That's a big deal for the Galatians. That's a big deal for you and for me. That's the first step in this gospel preservation is that they do not call Titus to anything other than faith in Jesus. Paul wants the Galatians to know that there are men uh, that have slipped into his meeting that are from Jerusalem that are pushing Paul to add circumcision to the salvation principles that he teaches. But they do not represent the true apostles of Jerusalem. See what he says? He says, this matter arose in verse 4 because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks. The only reason this is even a conversation is because there's these false teachers who are trying to pose as true believers but are not. Because they're trying to add to the gospel. These men were motivated not by God but by pride. They were motivated by tradition. They're motivated by lack of understanding of the power to God, of God to save all those who call on the name of the Lord. For Paul, look what he says, the idea of adding anything to the gospel for, for Paul is not a simply a variation, but it's a full assault on the freedom that's found in Jesus. These men with this message are attempting to make them slaves. 
by placing on them laws that Jesus took care of in his perfect life and his perfect death. This theme of Christian freedom runs rampant in this book, and it says that it says that these men had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. You ever thought about Christian freedom? You ever thought about the beauty of Christian freedom? I want to, I want to give you two things that represent Christian freedom in this passage, and I want you to marvel at them. First, they saw the freedom that is found in a transformed life. When they're spying in on this freedom that comes through Jesus Christ, they look and they see Titus, this Gentile, what they would have said is a dog. This man that, as Paul would say in Ephesians, was at one point without hope and without God in the world. That's how Paul described Ephesians apart from the work of Jesus. They saw that man, and they saw a man that didn't have to rigorously earn God's favor, but one who lived in obedience to God out of a heart that had been made new through grace. Christian freedom is freedom from the power of sin through faith in Jesus. Christian freedom is being able to say no. I tell our students this all the time. It's being able to say no to things that the world can't say no to. Romans 6 says, if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we'll be certainly united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. So they look in and they see this man who no longer desires the pagan sins he grew up in, because God has transformed his life. He has freedom in Christ Jesus. I want to encourage you that that sin that you can't seem to shake, there's freedom from that. It has no control over you anymore if you're in Christ. That flesh is dead. Secondly, I believe they spied on the freedom of Christian fellowship. In Galatians 5.13, Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. I want you to think about these two men that are in this room. Alright? Bear with me. Titus. Alright, I want you to think about Titus. A Greek, uncircumcised, come from Crete. Think about Barnabas. This is what Acts 4.36 and 37 says about Barnabas. His name was Joseph, and he was a Levite from Cyprus. That means that not only was he a Jew, but he was a Jew of the Levitical priesthood line. For those of you who don't know who understands, he's a Jew, and he's a really, really important line of the Jewish priesthood. And the apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. But I want us to notice that we had the false teachers poke their head. Can you imagine they look? They're kind of like trying to sneak into this meeting, right? It's closed doors. It's quiet. And they try to poke their head around the corner. And they're like, who's in there? And they look and they see Titus. And they see Barnabas. And those two guys are sitting next to each other. Engaging in gospel conversations. Praising God for the work that he's done in their lives. Defending Paul and the message that he's preaching. 
And these guys would have just been overwhelmed with, with their minds would have been blown. Like, how can these two guys be standing, sitting next to each other, enjoying each other's company? They hate each other. They've always hated each other. There's, an, there's animosity between them. How can this actually be happening? They're witnessing. They say, Barnabas is a Jew and Titus is a Gentile. Barnabas is from Jerusalem. Titus is from Crete. Barnabas is circumcised. Titus is uncircumcised. Barnabas grew up studying the Torah. Titus grew up studying Greek philosophy. Barnabas' family heritage is Levitical priesthood. Titus' family heritage is paganism. Barnabas has been redeemed by grace through faith, and Titus has been redeemed by grace through faith. Church, if you ever find yourself thinking of God as a little God, or thinking of the message of the gospel as not being very impactful, take a moment, look around you, and say, God worked in each one of us to bring us to the same place today in faith in Jesus. I won't be, I won't be student pastor Bryson and force you to actually look around. But have you ever, have you ever seen the beauty of God in the diversity of the church? You ever seen the freedom that comes from knowing that we have different backgrounds in different cities and different places? And this is just our church. Different areas, different jobs, different interests, different sports teams, and somehow we make it through that one. And Jesus is still the Lord of each one of our lives. That is a miracle. Barnabas and Titus, they look in and they say, there's no way. And Jesus said, yes, there is. Power. Power of the gospel. Power of the truth of the gospel. Where was I? So how is it these two men can be united in the freedom that they have in Christ? It's through the truth. That's what he says. Listen, he says, they wanted me to, they wanted me to uh, circumcise Titus. Verse 5, we did not give in to them for a moment. So what? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. For who? For you. What is this truth? I'm going to be quick. I know we got to do communion. Y'all already checking the clock. Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is what it says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is what? The power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First, the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, listen, in the gospel is the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The truth of the gospel is that the power of God that brings salvation, and it is received by what? By faith in Jesus Christ. And what else? Nothing else. It says, I did not give in for a moment. Why? That that's, that truth might, might be preserved for you, for the Galatians. There's several places in the Bible recently that I've felt the immense weight of the word you. And when Paul says that they stood their ground for the sake of preserving the gospel for you, what he means is the Galatians, but what I also think we can say is that what he means is you. Glenlock Baptist Church, 
Paul stood his ground about the message that he preaches, not just for the Galatians, but for you. Ever since Charlie was born, I've begun to think generationally for the first time. And I think it takes having another generation to think generationally. And as I read this passage, and um, I think about him and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, uh, I fear the thought that they will one day, one day hear a message that calls for, belie for belief in anything other than just Jesus. I, I feel a weight on my life to preach the message of Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I feel the weight of preserving that message so that one day my great-grandchildren do not hear, you know, you have, to have, you have to have Jesus plus a certain political party to be saved. That one day my great-grandchildren would hear, you know, you have to have Jesus plus a certain nationality to be saved. That you have to have Jesus plus a certain family history to be saved. The Christian freedom that the false teachers denied was that both the freedom to be redeemed as you are and the freedom to be reconciled to those you are nothing like. That is Christian freedom. That is the power of this gospel. My dad told me the other day, this is going to sound bad because I still don't remember his name. My dad told me so-and-so, that's who, that's who he is today, so-and-so died. Oh, that sounds like harsh, but the story ends well, okay? He said, so-and-so died. And I'm like, who is that? He said, you don't remember? I said, no. He said, he's the man that preached at our church the morning that you professed faith in Christ. I said, oh. I was 10, okay? So like... And as I thought about that, I want you to just think about this. Do you remember who it was that preached the morning that you professed faith in Christ? And if that morning is today, it's okay if you don't remember me. But what I do know is I, I remember the message that he preached. And the reason I remember the message he preached, I don't remember the scripture. I don't remember where he was in the Bible. I don't remember anything about it. But what I know is that the message that he preached was that Jesus, that I'm a sinner. That Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a death on the cross that I deserved. He was resurrected from the dead. He ascended. And that I needed a Savior. And that Savior can be Jesus. And that God saved me through grace, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. I know that I know the message because that is the only message that leads to salvation. It's important for that message to be preserved. Because for generations and generations and generations to come until Christ comes back, that's the only message that will save God cares about our gospel declaration. God cares about our gospel declaration. And so, in verses 6 through 10, and I'm going to bring this to a close really quickly. Verses 6 through 10, Paul returns to his train of thought from verse 2. Right? He's talked about the laying the gospel before them. He's had this little aside message that he usually puts in there because he's Paul and that's what he does. And so here is the unity that Paul came to achieve. Right, verse 6, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were, God doesn't show favoritism, they added nothing to, sorry, to my message. What does that mean? That means he said, here's the message, and they said, that's it. We agree. And Paul, I'm sure internally, was so happy to know that the gospel he preached was the gospel of faith. 
Verse 9, we kind of get the positive form of this statement. It says that James and Cephas, who is Peter and John, those esteemed as pillars, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. So they reached out a hand and they said, we are one in this mission. They added nothing to my message. There's his independence. And they gave me the right hand of fellowship. There's the unity. Both of those achieved in one meeting. And the Galatians can be sure from that the message they hear from Paul is authoritative. And it's the true gospel. And they can rejoice in knowing that this is really it. And the false teachers are starting to lose their footing in Galatia because their arguments falling apart. And from this passage, and I want us to be careful, because it would be incredibly easy to leave here praising Paul and Peter and John and James for the work that they did. It would be very easy because they had a part in it. They had to have the conversations. They had to do the right things. They had to, they had to, to make some sacrifices for this. And so it would be really easy to say and leave and say, man, I'm so thankful for Paul. It's good to be thankful for Paul. I'm so thankful for Peter. It's good to be thankful for Peter. Paul came to Jerusalem. He didn't give in. The other apostles didn't add. They extended their hand. But what I want us to notice in this last section, that the underlying of all of those tasks and events is a glorious God who is working it all together. I, want you, I don't want you to leave here praising Paul and praising Peter and all those people. I want you to leave here praising God. These men aren't simply united by an idea. The idea of the gospel is not going to unite us. It's the reality of it. So as we close, I want us to notice that they, are, they have come around not a common knowledge, but they've come around a common Lord. So as we close, I want us to see that we truly are motivated by this unity. The, the, the motivation of it was, a, was the work of a loving God in the lives of these men. Look at verse 8 really quickly. Verse 8, it says, For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. If you look at at work in the, in the Greek, and I'm not going to so butcher this. I listened to it four different, four different websites, and they said it four different ways, so it's not on me. Energeo, which brings us the word energized. What it means is to work. To cause the function. It was God who had set aside these men for this task. It was God who had instructed these men in the gospel. It was God who brought them together in Jerusalem. These men did not come around a common or communal idea. They came around and fellowshiped around a common reality. And that is that God was at work in their lives. So before we too quickly praise Paul and praise Peter, let's not forget to praise God. Let's not forget that even Paul said earlier in Galatians that God was the one who set him aside in his mother's womb for this task. That the gospel itself is a creation of, of God's own doing, not Paul's. And look at the end of verse 9. This is really good, if you're wondering. Said that at the end of verse 9, that they gave the, the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. As I thought about that this week, I began to think about each of these guys individually. Think about Paul, really quickly. Acts 9. 
He's imprisoning and killing Christians, and Jesus intervenes grace and changes his life. James, the brother of Jesus, this is in John 7. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. James grew up as a skeptic of Jesus, and now he's an apostle in the church. That's the grace of God. John, the brother of the, brother of the other James, twice in the chapter of Luke 9, he's rebuked. Once he asked Jesus if they should stop a man who's driving out demons. The other times he asked Jesus if he should call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. Don't think John needed grace? And Peter. Peter's whole book would be written on the grace. I'll just pick out one instance. Peter denied Jesus three times. And Jesus restored him. You think these guys knew? Oh, these guys knew grace. They knew that that's what united them. That's what empowered them. They knew that that message that they preached only had power in so much that they understood the grace it was dripping with. So as we end, two applications. First, they say, preach the gospel. That's the title of the message. Preach the gospel. You were called to go to the circumcised. I was called to go to the uncircumcised. Notice that they say they have a unified message but a diverse audience. It's okay that I'm not preaching to everybody because I wasn't called to preach to everybody. You know there's people in your life that you can reach with the gospel that I can't? Let's just think about that for a minute. There's people that God has placed in your life that you can preach the gospel to that will never hear it from me. That's the power that Peter and Paul are talking to, talking about. They're not setting a standard. They're recognizing a reality. I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles. You're going to go preach to the Jews. I'm going to preach to Glenlock Baptist Church. You're going to preach to your co-workers. I'm going to preach to my son. You're going to preach to your son and your daughter. We're going to come around this unified message that we're going to preach the gospel. It's the power of salvation. And secondly, we're going to remember the poor. It's interesting how this ends. You know, gospel, 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 gospel. Remember the poor. They could have said, all right, now we got this good idea. Now let's put in some strategies for, like, expansion. No, they said, remember the poor. No other message on earth transitions to meeting the practical needs of people more than the gospel does. And the reason for that is because when your greatest need has been taken care of, you can take care of the needs of others. Jesus, over and over again, showed his love for the poor, for the broken, for the hurting. The message of the gospel itself is God caring for the poor, for you and for me. If you read the book of James, James says, if you, this is a James who's sitting here in this meeting. So suppose that a brother is without clothes or daily food. If one says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. The power of the gospel not only saves, but it drives us to preach the gospel and to remember the poor. Church is to be a beacon of meeting the physical and spiritual needs of our community, of our nation, and of our world. I'll end with this story. I mean, I know I've ended several times. I'll end with this story. This is a real life story. Okay, we partnered with this people called God, uh, people called 
Um, I can't find my words. Well, I can't remember. But we partnered with them. And uh, word partners. The partner was in the, was in the title. Word partners. And um, they have churches in, they have churches in Kaib where the war is taking place. And uh, when they, when all the things happened, and I don't know if you knew that this week, I think, was a year since that, that war started in, in Ukraine. And it says that they got driven away from where they were. And a lot of them could have gone home, but instead of going home, they relocated somewhere else in the area. And this is just one story. I just want to end with this, okay? It says our church, this guy, I'm not going to say his name. I think the name has been changed anyway. But it says our church is doing a lot of things for refugees and soldiers and people who live in our community. It's been a time of throwing something in the midst of ruins. A new church in this new location. A new church, he says, in his location of evacuation. The church plant he and his wife have become involved with has been a place for life and care and hope for those fleeing the war. He says, we've been involved with preaching and leading church services and building ministries and building worship ministry and mentoring individuals. He says, a lot of their work is with refugees. The church has provided housing. Listen, the church has provided housing and food and has been a catalyst for others in the community to serve and provide for refugee needs. The local officials were impressed by this example, and they know that it's an example of God's love shown by his children. And this is what he says this work has also brought people who wouldn't normally come to church into a place where they both see. Live it out to go see and hear the gospel. And this is the this is the beauty of the ending. Many of them have gotten a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus and accept Christ as Savior. That's one thing which God continues to do in our country. Preach the gospel and remember the poor. 